Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. Today on the program, I sit down with a good buddy of mine, Big Sprague. Uh, we were teammates for two years. We've known each other for a long time since our college days. Eddie's a two-time World Series champion. He won two college World Series. He won a gold medal in 88. Uh, he's currently the director of player development for the Oakland A's. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Ed Sprague to the program. Eddie, Boone. thanks for coming on. Absolutely, Boney. Absolutely. That's a lot of credentials right there I rattled <laughs> off. Pretty good. Sound kind of natural? Yeah. <laughs> Um, for those out there listening to the Boom Podcast, Eddie was a real – we didn't know each other back in our college days. We played against each other for one year, <clears throat> but especially the baseball players out there. When, when we're in high school, especially in our day, we commit to a school. And I, he, he was a Stanford Cardinal. I was a, I was a Trojan. Uh, but I remember when I, when, S, when I signed with SC – as a high school player, you're watching two things. Am I going to get drafted? Am I going to get drafted high? And the college uh, league that you're going into for us was the Pac-6. And the Stanford Cardinal, they're coming off back-to-back World Series championships. So college World Series championship. But as a junior, senior in high school, man, that's all we did is, oh, I got Rosenblatt Stadium and look at, there's Big Sprague and Paul Carey. And at the time it was Ronnie Whitmire at first base. And as a young kid coming into SC, it, it was, and I remember the first time we played you, I'm like, I've been watching those guys on TV, you know, and I grew up in the game. I grew up in Philly with Pete Rose and Schmitty and that wasn't a big deal to me, but playing Stanford that first time when you came to SC, uh, it was kind of cool. Did you have that kind of experience when you were being recruited to uh, Stanford? 
No, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of idea what was going on. I got recruited by only a handful of places. I mean, I wanted to go to Arizona State, right? That's, you know, that was the one I was coming out. That's who was dominant, you know, growing up. So I really wanted to go to Arizona State, but they didn't recruit me. So it was like Fresno State, you know, Hawaii, Stanford, Cal, and Pepperdine were really the only schools. So, but I really, like there I grew up was watching, you know, obviously watch McGuire a little bit, all those 84 Olympian guys, you know, were the guys that I was kind of following. And, um, but, you know, Bonds at Bonds and Horner and all those guys that came from Arizona State that dominated um, back then, you know, was probably a little bit more my era. Uh, speaking of the Pac 10, there's no more. Stanford, Cal, they're going to the ACC. SC and UCLA, we're going to the Big Ten. Um, what do you think about that? Because for a long time, that was kind of the staple, especially baseball-wise. It was the Pac-6. Everybody thinks it's always Pac-10, Pac-12. For us, it was the Pac-6. It was Arizona State, U of A, UCLA, SC, Stanford, Cal. And that was the bar. What do you think about it going away now? What do you think about it from a player's perspective and just a historical perspective? Yeah, I mean, you're right. We were the standard back then, the six-pack. I mean, we played 30 conference games. I mean, we played everybody twice, home and away. Um, you know, the year I went to 88, I think we had four of the six four of the six teams in the conference were out the College World Series. You know I mean? So we were the standard before the SEC came in and now has kind of set the standard. But I'm sad, to be honest with you. I think it's – you know, we had great rivalries, um, you know, Northern California and Southern California and Arizona and – and now, I mean, football apart, it's going to be brutal on these student athletes. You're going to tell me they're going to jump on a plane on uh, Thursday afternoon to fly out for a three-game series on the East Coast, get back at one in the morning and on Sunday night, and be expected to go to class Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and survive. I mean, it's the NC2A talking about student athlete welfare is is a joke. In my opinion, <laughs> it's it's laughable. <laughs> I mean, you know, as it as it any, anything, Eddie though it. it it comes down to the dollar, and, and if this is gonna, this is gonna make them more money, then they're gonna do it. Um, the travel, it, first, I think, wow, travel for a, a young college player, it's like, wow, I've never really. A lot of those kids probably never got to travel much, so it'd be, it would be exciting. But by the end of that season, like you said, you're you're going back east, and probably when you you land, you've got a two or three hour bus ride to get to the campus wherever you're going and that just begins your your three-day three-day set but i don't know i i'm kind of i don't know i i understand why they're doing it but but every time i've got somebody from the from the from our conference on i ask them and and the the answers range i mean the football players are are a little bit more well this is the way you know it's just going in 2023 but yeah i'm with you i think I don't know, just the history of, of the Pac-6 and, right. and all the championships that have come out of that division. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you're going you're gonna to be playing in, in a different conference. But I, I guess that's for them to deal with. Well, they talk about it. It's everything that revolves all in football, right? I get that. Right. But, you know, oh. football, they play, they play one game on a Saturday, right? They're, they fly in Friday, play Saturday, they're out of there. They're going to probably have a chartered plane. You know, right. what about the track and field, softball, volleyball? You know, are right. they chartered planes for those guys, those, those athletes? You know, I just think that I understand that football runs the show and it, it makes the money and that's great. And that's what drives a lot of these uh, other programs to exist, which is great. But they should make sure they take care of these student athletes 
and their travel and everything else. So hopefully they reinvest some of that money in either chartered planes or how they get around and how they're going to do it. Yeah, they're going to charter a plane for the baseball team. No chance. It's like the women's field hockey team. We're going to Michigan to play a three-game set. Uh, you're going to be on spirit, and you're going to have two stops, and you're going to get there because they're going to go bang for the buck. And then the SC football team, without a doubt, is going to have a Delta charter flight. It's and and a one like you said, one game because the other sports you can't afford it. Because the seasons are so much longer, you, you can't just fly to the East Coast for one game. It's got to be a three-game set so you don't have to go back there. But you're right. I, I mean, I haven't thought about that. The travel for a baseball team is much different than travel for a football team. When you go right. charter well, like, versus commercial. Even soccer. You know, the women's soccer, I think, plays on Thursday nights. No way they're chartering. I know, but, I mean, when are they going to go to school? They go Thursday and Sunday. They're going to leave. Well, uh, don't go to Stanford. <laughs> you know, got to worry about the school. Everything's online now. Just zoom it all up. That's right. Uh, 2000, 2001 is where where Eddie and, and myself were teammates. We started off in San Diego, playing for Bruce Bochy, just won, just won the World Series this year. And then we're teammates once again in 2001, playing for Lou. So we had back-to-back classics. We got Bochy, and then we go to Lou. I don't, I don't think it gets better than that. that that's my – that's the way I saw it. I mean, I just enjoyed the heck out of both of those guys. What do you remember? Our San Diego year, we had a good bunch of guys. Boach obviously made it great, but we weren't very good. I think we finished in third or fourth place. We move on together as uh, I like to call it a package deal. It wasn't. It had nothing to do with that. But uh, we go to we go to Seattle in 2001 playing for Pinella and awesome bunch of guys. Uh, usually. You know, I laugh when when people talk about team camaraderie and, oh, did they have chemistry? Well, usually when you win, you come away from those years going, man, everybody on that team was a great guy. When you lose, you usually leave and everybody's finger pointing at people. What do you remember about just the brief time that you had in Seattle that 2001 season? Yeah, I mean, it was great for me. I mean, I was I was at the tail end of my career when we played together. You know, I was basically a role player, um, you know, kind of a platoon guy in San Diego and then really just kind of the 25th man, if you will. I mean, there's 26 now, but I was kind of that 25th guy uh, in Seattle. So, you know, I'd play a little bit for Olerud, the tough lefty, you know, maybe go to left. Um, I even caught an inning for the first time in 10 years when Lou just told me, hey, spray, you're going to catch the ninth. I'm like, all right, I haven't done that in 10 years, but let's let's give it a jingle. Um, but yeah, I think we, it was it was great. I mean, obviously I walked in, I, I signed late in May and the team was already in the lead and um, it was like, like for me, it was like a paid vacation year, right? You guys were just rolling. I mean, I didn't, I think I got a hundred at bats and got to sit back and watch Ichiro have an incredible rookie year. You were in the middle of a, you know, one of your probably best years you had, uh, you know, just everybody, Oli was doing good and David Bell and I mean, Dan Wilson. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Edgar, you know, this, the amount of talent on that team, uh, that went along to continue to have, you know, longer and longer careers was incredible. You got a lose story for me? <laughs> well, my favorite lose story is this wasn't there, but this was told me by Dan Wilson. And uh, so Brian Price, who was our pitching coach, right? right. I, I got to hear a lot of the lose stuff because I was on the bench the whole time. So he tells, uh, he calls, everybody called Brian Price BP, right? Well, Lou didn't know everybody's name. Like, you know, he called everybody's son. He didn't know anybody son. who, even on the team, they didn't know Edgar's name. He didn't know anybody's name. 
So this this happened in Cleveland, I guess. And so um, he says, CB, hey, CB, CB. And Price is like, I'm not answering. So finally, he's got to answer the manager. He says, uh, well, Lou, it's BP, but yeah, what do you need? <laughs> he says, get Ossenmacher up. He goes, well, I would, except we pitched three innings ago for the other team. <laughs> and he's like, but get that other lefty hander up. He's got an A in his name. Whoever that guy is, get him up. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of classic Lou. So he, he, he was unbelievable. I, I loved it. I got to see him in uh, Seattle this, this summer at the all-star game. I was up there. We had little mini reunion for, <clears throat> for the all-star game. They had the all-stars from 2001. Lou came out and, uh, it was great to see him. It was pretty cool, Eddie. I mean, you would have loved it being in that room. Just it, we get it gave us about twenty minutes, and every you know where they put us, they stuck us in because we had to go out for the ceremony right before the All Star game tipped off. So that's all hidden in a room. So it's when you first walk into the clubhouse, if you hang a quick left into that equipment room, they just smashed us all in there, and there was like twenty of us in a uh, in a. I want to call it a 20 by 20. Anyway, big Rude's sitting there and you had Freddie Garcia and, and Buner and Griffey were throwing out the first pitch. So they were in there with us and I was sitting with Lou on the couch and I just wound him up like I always do and let him go. So I'd bring up something. Hey Lou, what do you think? You know, I'd bring up something about the current state of the game. And I knew that he would, he would differ with. And I'd say, Lou, what do you think about this? And Oh, booty shit. And he'd go, and it felt like we were back in 2001. Just for that 20 minutes, it was really cool to to sit around and listen and have an Olerud chip in and with his backpack on. It was great. Yeah, the one thing I, I appreciate about him as a manager is I felt like he treated everybody the same. Like he, he didn't. He was you know he would rag the superstars, he would rag the bench players, he would get on them equally, right? But the one thing I appreciate about him is, and he would talk a lot of trash on the, about the players on the field when they were out there. If he made a mistake, he's like, what did I bone doing? I can't believe it. But as soon as you came into the dugout, he went right up to you and got on your ass. So, yeah. it, it, you know, you didn't sit there and have, you know, somebody like, oh, you should have heard what Lou was saying about you when you're on the field. You know, and I just appreciate that, that honesty and upfrontness. It was always, it was always, the, it was always really cool that way. So. Well, you know, when I explained Lou, because I played for him two different times as a rookie and man, we had a, we had some battles and almost almost went to blows, like real blows. And I come back as a veteran player and we had a completely different relationship. And to this day, one of my favorite men, not, not, not managers, but one of my favorite men in, of all in all of baseball that, that I've encountered throughout my career. And, and I just found with Lou is he's not for every team, <laughs> But I'll tell you what, if you've got a bunch of men that he respects, not only as players, but as men, that man will take a bullet for you. But if he doesn't respect you as a player, how you play the game, or as a man, it's going to be a long season. And I saw a lot of guys struggle with that. But that particular uh, group of guys in 2001 and, and 2002 uh, – worked perfectly because they were they were what I was talking about people that Lou could talk to had thick skin you got to have thick skin when you play for Lou you can't really? you just roll over I, I I hear you what you're saying about being on the bench and hearing Lou Booty what the hell's he doing out there he'd say when I came in the dugout he first thing he'd say is Booty what do you and I'd say Lou 
and I'd throw my glove at him. I'd say, you go play it. You go field it. That was a tougher, you know, I, I'd explain what happened. And usually at the end of the conversation, he'd throw his hands up and go, all right, son, whatever. Let's just get a hit or something like that. But I appreciated that about him because I could be honest with him. We could have our differences. We'd work it out and we'd move on and we were professionals. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think he was fair. But you, you couldn't be – Lou is not for the timid, timid guy or the weak. Yeah. No, he was he was fantastic. Another story. So we had Sasaki was our closer that year, right? I think he was leading the American League in in saves. And you know, obviously, I was dunk out. I would come out from the cage that was right underneath, you know, there, and I'd be hitting or whatever. And he'd come in, he starts smoking his cigarette, and he's like, "This guy's killing me." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Sasaki, that, that guy, he's killing me." I go, "He's leading the American League in saves." He goes, "He stinks. I can't believe it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how he was. Snag underneath, you know, <laughs> that's you know. how he was. I, yeah. I love the C, C, CB, CB. No, it's BP. But let's move on. <laughs> who was our Who was our backup outfielder? The right hand, Javier. No, no, there was. We had a young right hander. Um, <laughs> I remember. Um, what was his name? Well, Bloomquist. Kind of. No, no, you're thinking of different different year. Javier was oh, okay. A, but we had that. It was a young, young right-handed. Oh, I know uh, who you're talking about. You pinch uh, ran a lot and everything. Gibson. Yeah, Gibby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, at one point, he says, "Hey, there was a left-hander in the bullpen." He's like, "Righties, get loose!" So all the righties get up off the bench. Good He's like, "Not you, Gibby. You're not hitting." <laughs> <laughs> I said hitters. <laughs> yeah. You're not gonna hit. <laughs> but that's how he was. That's how he was. And, and once you prove yourself to him, man, that guy, will, he'll go to the mat for you. But until yeah. you do, can you imagine being a big leg? You're a big ligger. Yeah. <laughs> Righties get ready. And then he says, not you. <laughs> but I'm right-handed. Yeah, but you're not a hitter. You're a pinch run guy. Yeah. Oh, uh, he's, yeah, he's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. All right. Something we have in common. Uh, your dad, Ed Sr., uh, played from 68 to 70, 76 in the big leagues. Um, I know what my childhood was. I know I had an unbelievable childhood. I was in the minor leagues, and my dad was still in the big leagues. So I got my entire 20 years, pretty much, of, of life to that point going to the ballpark with dad. Uh, I, I understand that's really unique, and we all don't get that. But how much time... I'm assuming your dad retired when you were probably 10 years old. How yeah, much a little, time? A little younger. Yeah. How much time did you get to spend as a young kid around the game? Yeah. So interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I do remember some tidbits when he was in Cincinnati with Rose and Johnny Bench and stuff like that. Um, you know, Robin Yount is one of his great friends. And, you know, um, I remember riding home from, the ballpark in his car and he babysitting me when I was a kid, but I, that was brief, you know, that was brief, but you know, my ability, you know, when my dad retired a couple of years later, he ended up buying a minor league team. He bought the Stockton ports, Stockton which, ports yeah. you know, which is now one of our affiliates at the time it was Milwaukee affiliate. So he was kind of in a unique role where he was also like a roving pitching coordinator for the Brewers. So he was on the team. And so I spent time being a bat boy I watched Sheffield go through there, Dan Plesak. I watched a lot of these guys that I would later end up playing against. You know, I was bat boy, clubhouse kid. Later on, I was bullpen catcher. Um, so I spent a lot of time, you know, probably from age 12 to 15, actually until I went off to college, really uh, taking BP, taking ground balls, 
Uh, you know, Jerry Weinstein, longtime college and professional coach, would hit me balls. I'd be blocking with no, you know, no glove at shortstop. So there was a lot of opportunities for me to, to be around the game in that aspect. And then, like I said, I, later on and I played, I ended up playing against Robin Yount, played, you know, faced Dan Plesak, some of these guys that had come through Sheffield, you know, um, some of these guys that I see come through the Stockton era. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the show, your um, director of player development for the Oakland A's. That started in 2020. I want to talk about your UOP days. And I remember, you know, I was just finishing up my career when you when you took over the helm at Pacific. Uh, I think it was 2006. Talk to me about coaching college baseball. I think you did it for eight or nine years. Uh, Twelve. How did you de- How did you decide to do it? So the University of Pacific's in my hometown, you know, Stockton, where I was from. Um, I literally kind of retired. I took that first year off and was playing golf like most retired athletes do. And um, they happened to call me. I just, they, they called me, athletic director reached out and asked if I would come in and talk about the position. I didn't really want to coach in college at the time. I had no, I thought at some point I would coach eventually somewhere, you know, Grady Fuson, a friend of both of ours is, you know, he offered me the hitting coordinator position with Texas at the time. Um, But I, I just was kind of ready to be with family, you know, and, um, so the UOP came thing up. I went and I sat down and talked to them at the time they didn't really have, they had no scholarships. They had no field. Um, so I was like, nah, I don't really think this is for me. And they're like, well, they, what would you do to make it work? I said, well, you have to go to full scholarships. You'd have to pay. I think they were paying the assistant coaches at the time, like 5,000 bucks. You know, um, I said, you have to pay the assistants good money. Uh, and you know, you got to build a stadium. So they said, okay. Well, I didn't realize after the fact that I'd have to raise all the money for all that stuff that they didn't tell me that was part of the deal. But um, it was, you know, it was a it was a fun time. I got to stay at home, watch the kids grow up, stay in the game. Uh, you know, the recruiting was was difficult, um, but the kids that came through there were good. We had a lot of good times. We had a couple of good years. Most of them were not very good, but uh, it was it was a challenging effort. But it was it was an office job. There was a lot of administration stuff with it. Um, and. So I kind of, I think I kind of learned a lot that helps me in my job today, you know, but just being in an office every day. Um, so, but it was like, it was, a, it was a good time. I think just to have the family around and it was five minutes from my house. My office was five minutes. So I could go home for lunch. I could pick up the kids if I needed to. So there was a lot of good positives for 12 years though. 12 years. Yeah. What was your last year there? Uh, 2015. I started in summer of 03. Oh, okay. I thought you started in 04 and finished in, or in 06 and finished in 14. I'm wrong. Who who cares? 12 years, 12 years. Uh, I've had, I had uh, Willie Bloomquist and Chip Hale and they were talking about the, especially now with all the things going on in the portals and it's gotten, they've kind of thrown another wrench into it, but the recruiting part, the recruiting part, Eddie, you were a first round pick and, and probably what was that? 89, 88, 88 money was a little different then. (laughs) you know, it was a little different then, especially for the high school guys coming out. So a a guy like a Mike Mussina, you played with your junior year. He was a freshman. He was a number one pick, but he told him from the get go, I'm going to Stanford and he did go to Stanford. But back then the money wasn't millions of dollars. 
Now, if you're a first, you know, on your side of the ledger now with the A's, right. if you're a first round pick or second round pick, it doesn't matter. You're going because the money's too much to really turn down. And, and nowadays, if you're a first, second round pick and you're worried about college, they'll say, well, we'll throw the college scholarship on top of it. So so times have changed. But I but I would assume what if, if you had to pick the biggest challenge coaching at the collegiate level, what was it? Was it the recruiting? Yeah, I mean, for our school, because we were a small private school, right? So we're in Stockton, you know, not a big Central Valley. You're still talking private money. It's 65000 to go to school there, um, you know, trying to break those scholarships up. Um, you know, probably should have done it with more junior college players, which we did early. And then they, the administrating kind of didn't want that. They wanted freshmen, just kind of part of the, of the overall uh, – you know, school was what they were what they were wanting to do. So it was it was challenging, basically finding kids with really good grades. And if they had really good grades or were a really good player, they're not coming to us. They're going to Stanford, USC, right. Vanderbilt. You know, a lot of other schools. So you were getting, you know, back end guys that or guys that you could think that had a little chance to grow. And you know, you weren't getting any frontline guys. Those guys were all going to right. SEC or anywhere else. So you had to really be good at looking at a 14, 15, 16 year old kid and trying to project him out. So it really came down to the character of the, of the players. And I think that's when we were good, we had high character guys, you know, that, that got after it. So let's challenge You pr transition to the program. You go to the A's in 2016. Um, and before you took over your current role, uh, what were you doing for the A's? Your special assistant, were you doing a little of everything? Yeah, so the first year I was just traveling around. You know, I, I called it I was Uncle Ed to the players, right? I just go in there, just former player, go in there, sit in the dugout, BS with the guys, talk about you know different things, thought processes or whatever. So I was a coach, but I traveled, you know, throughout all the affiliates. Um, and then at the end of that year, they're like, okay, you know, what do you want to do? You want to manage? Do you want to be a hitting coach? And what I had found in my travels this is before, you know, we had. At the time, they were using analytics only for player acquisition, right? And they were an evaluation. But they weren't really showing the players the analytics, and they weren't being honest to what they were being valued on, right? So play, at that time in 2016, you know, it didn't seem that far ago. Players were still thinking, you know, batting average, home runs, and RBIs, right? That's what they were looking at. And clubs were looking at different things, you know, WRC+, plus, weighted average, all these kind of different on base percentage. And so even then, some of the early framing numbers that were coming in, I thought were a little off. So I said, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the liaison between the analytic department and player development. And I think everybody has that now, but at the time, nobody really had that. And Billy was like, okay. So I had to make up a title. And I spent that winter going over to uh, Oakland, you know, a couple of times a month and sitting with the analytic team and learning their side, they're hearing my side um, and just kind of, delving into that and, and trying to explain both sides of it. And then I took that uh, to the players and I took it to the coaches, trying to educate the coaches at the time was challenging as well, because, you know, they're old school guys. They didn't want to hear about analytics and how it's going to help that stuff. But, um, you know, then we, then that kind of shifted and how can we use these analytics to better develop the players? Cause everybody has all the same analytics now, right. For acquisition. So it's like, how can we do that? So I transitioned that. I became like a coordinator of instruction, um, and I did that for a couple of years and then I became assistant farm director. And then in 2000, uh, winter of 2019, Keith Lippman, the longtime 
farm director, been there, you know, 30 something years, uh, 50 in the organization, uh, stepped aside and they, they gave it to me. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It, it is. For somebody that hasn't gone to those the depths that you have as far as the analytical and being from the old school, where I think you hit it on the head. We, when we were playing, it was about three things. You're right. It was about what you hit, how many homers you hit, how many did you drive in. And that was the big number is how much did you drive in. That's what we got paid for. Back then, your best hitter hit third, your best hitter hit fourth. Now, the best hitter hit second. Right. So, you know, just logic would say you're not going to drive in as many runs as if you were in a three or the four hole. You get up more often. <clears throat> that That is – it's still <clears> – <throat> you know, I'm in between. I, I see a lot of the analytics, and I think they're great. Um, I, I wonder if too much information in the wrong hands can be a detriment. That's what I always think because everybody isn't – I think what the <clears throat> analytics don't take into consideration is the man, the heartbeat. And certain guys can handle whatever you throw at them. But certain guys, especially in nowadays <clears> – excuse me, I'll go down and – I'll go down with the minor league guys and watch them get ready for, for their upcoming season. And, you know, they got that rap. So, or whatever they call it on it, it's exit velo. And man, when a guy's not having a good day and his exit velo is usually 97 or 98. And today it's like 94. I mean, he goes home with his tail between his legs. Like, <laughs> like he just lost the world series and I'm going, wow, turn that stupid rap. So off, I can hear it. You know, when you smoke a ball in the gap, you know, when your swings on time, you know what you're, when you're, when you're working on things in the off season, if you're doing good and to put all that emphasis in the wrong hands, I'm not saying, you know, a pros pro, right. He won't even pay attention to what his exit velocity is when he's working on things. It'll be there when he needs it. He knows that, 
But I worry about the young player to get too wrapped up in these numbers. And if they're not hitting their numbers, it becomes mental. Like it just wasn't right. My numbers and BP weren't weren't what they're supposed to be. So how am I going to play in the game tonight? Does that make sense to you? Do you yeah, do no, you run do you run into that? Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, I think like I said, that original role is having that liaison, someone who had played, who could understand the numbers and then argue against them, right? So I, my whole point has been like, don't ignore them. You need to understand them. And then you can create an argument whether they're good or bad or indifferent, right? I mean, I still have the argument, you talk about RBIs, I still have the argument with with our analysts, they're like, oh, RBIs doesn't matter. It's it's because that's just a, a where you hit in the order. I was like, no, the guys doesn't. that hit in the middle of the order are pitched differently than the guys that hit below. So right. the, the knack of driving in runs with runners in scoring position is a knack. And guys are good at it. You just don't say, oh, this guy had 100 RBIs this year because, you know, Mike Trout was on in, on base in front of him every time. Now, there, there is some logic that, yeah, you, you're not going to drive in more if you don't have people on. But you can't tell me that the clutch – player or the guy that can stay in the box and, and face four sliders in a row with bases loaded, you know, after a hundred in his head, you know, they're not going to give into that guy. They're just not. And so that's why you see in the postseason, that's why you see all these unsung heroes is because they got to pitch to somebody. And usually they're not going to pitch to the guys in the middle of the order. And if they are, they're getting the entire kitchen sink. And so for them to drive in a run, you know, they're going to earn it. You know, they're going to be able to take that hard two seamer in and shoot it over the, you know, the first baseman's head. Right. Because that's how their knack is, right? I mean, I played with Joe Carter. He drove in 100 every year. He drove in 100 whether he hit 220 or he hit 280. He just had a knack when guys got on. You know, I think that, uh, you know, Cecil Fielder was like that a little bit. There's some yeah, guys. Juan know, Gonzalez. Juan Gonzalez. There were some, yeah, some players that just, they changed their approach to driving runs because you said it was important. Yeah. And now they don't value it as much. So guess what? Guys just tell, stand up there and swing out of their ass, and they're like, oh, he popped it up and we're on third. No biggie. Oh, it's unbelievable. Did you, how about the postseason, the World Series? I mean, it was driving me crazy. And, and I would, as a player, and, and I'm sure you went through it in, in our time, you can deal with an 0 for 4. 0 for 4s are going to happen. But, man, you leave that runner on third with less than two, once in a game, let alone if you had a real rough night and you did it twice, those are times where I couldn't sleep at night. I watched this postseason all the way through pretty much every single game. The amount of runners left on third with less than two outs was mind-boggling. It was like we're not even trying to get him in. And, and eventually I just went I, – I couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night if I had – at one point I'm counting and it was like – the last nine times there was a runner on third less than two. One time they got him in. No wonder they don't bunt. No wonder they don't move them over like we used to move the runners over. You don't get them in anyway. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and I sit there and I watch the – and, Eddie, I watch the approach. That's a point. With the runner on third, that is a point for your team. So you've got to take into consideration – and I remember I used to do this. Who am I facing? How tough is he on me? Maybe I got a heavy sinker ball guy that I'm just not going to hit a double. I'm not going to hit a homer in this position. I've got that runner on third. Maybe it's infield back. And my best chance is to hit a 15 hopper to the shortstop. Yeah, I'm 0 for 1, but it's a ribby and it's a point for my team. And I would take it bats like that. Obviously, the ultimate is to get up there and get a base hit with a runner on third. The right. second best thing is to hit that sack fly because now you're 0 for 0, but you got the ribby. And then third is... 
hit the ball to short at 18 hopper and you're 0 for 1 with an RBI. The worst for the hitter, but it still gets the job done is hitting into that double play of the run scores because you don't get the ribby. You're 0 for, but your team gets a it gets right. a run on the on the scoreboard. But I just I don't know. Is it me or or am I not seeing that that it's not? I don't know. It's like that. But I I still well, think I, I think it comes down to no. You're 100 right. I think it comes down to the value, right? And they, I think there's the industry has placed less value on that. Now you, you look at the postseason. Obviously, it's all about winning. So right. If guys, it's two to one, there's a lot of value in that run over there. Right. They always say, well, the run scoring environment it is as good as you move a guy over because it's only it leads to one run. I said sometimes you only need one. You know, sometimes you got to win games two to one. But to your point is like you had. You had a great two-strike approach, right? You gave in. You were, I mean, you let it eat until you got two strikes, and then you spread out and you choked up, and you, you were in there battling to get that run in. And these guys, they don't practice that. I, I tell our young players all the time. I said, I said, you can't hit driver every time. I said, sometimes, right. you, sometimes you step up to a hole and you got out of bounds on the right and water. Yeah, I had a hybrid. <laughs> so, so how about just choke down a little five iron, chip it down the middle? You know, yeah. sometimes you got to use all the clubs in your bag. And these today, these kids, they just want to hit driver every. So they're just, they're just leaning on it, and they so they punch out. But if you look at the postseason, the teams who got there, I mean, I know they wasn't they weren't great at it, but the teams who got there, they did give in. They they shot some balls to right. They choked up a little bit. They, you know, they weren't they were better at it than everybody else doing it. I guess that's why they got right. to the World Series. Right. You know what I mean? I think the Diamondbacks did a nice job. That's kind of was their game all year, so they were pretty good at it. And I think Texas, you know, those they shift them a little bit up the middle, and boom, a guy would hit one in the four hole. So I think that's why they got there, but there is there's not enough uh, adjustments in the box today to just put it in play and get that run in because not that I don't they have the ability to they they do have the ability I just don't think the industry is valued enough to give in because they they want to get paid they want to get paid you start you start rewarding guys to beat the shift they'll beat the shift I think. I- <clears throat> that's good. I'm going to use that. I think it's great. Everybody wants to hit driver. And sometimes it's, it's not a driver hole. Exactly. It's that, it's that tight neck. And if you hit it too far, you're in the hazard. You got to carve it just right. Hit the five iron, hit the five iron down the middle and, and live to play another day. Exactly. And, and, and I think that's a great scenario for it. Uh, you mentioned Keith Lippman. Uh, I worked briefly for the Oakland A's in, in 14 and 15 and, and Keith was there. What, what a great man. Yeah, the, the gentleman that you took over for as the farm director. Uh, I think recently he was he was put into the Oakland A's Hall of Fame and and uh, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. But all right, you take the helm. And, and I'm going to give you three different scenarios. You're kind of like you're big Sprague now. You're the boss of the minor leagues. <laughs> Because that's what I looked at Lip when I was there. I'm like, that's the boss of the minor leagues. And he would laugh and say, no, Booney, I'm just here. And, you know, during our meetings, those meetings you have in the morning on instructional ball. So you take over. <coughs> First of all, when's your biggest time of the year? When's your busiest time? Uh, spring training, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, seven weeks there because we start with big league camp and work ourselves all the way through. Um I would say that's that's the biggest time in terms of communication and meetings and and conversations that are being had. So, you know, I was fortunate. Like I said, Lip was awesome. He's a great mentor. I still call him to this day when we talk about things. I got Grady Fuson on my right hand side as well as a special assistant. He's been doing it forever. So, I mean, I've got pretty good training wheels on this thing for the first couple of years I did it. Um, 
you know, and just it's just having those relationships and moving back and forth between the big leagues and talking to Kotze and the manager and the bench coach in terms of sending players up and down spring training, making sure that their rosters are full. That's probably the biggest thing. And like I said, I, you know, you were around, you were around Oakland and we've had a lot of people in that in that uh, building for a lot of years. So the transition was a lot easier not having to train a bunch of new coaches on on how things go because they've been doing it for so long. All right. Take me through the day of Ed Sprague in instructional ball. Just give me your typical day. Yeah. Typical days, you know, you basically wake up. We usually, I mean, a lot of people work out. I mean, sometimes I work out, sometimes I don't, but uh, usually get, get up about five thirty six. Uh, get to the ballpark. We usually have a staff meeting um, right around seven forty five or eight, you know, uh, instructional has changed a little bit since, you were there. Less teams are doing it. So the last two years, we've done mostly inter-squads. So it's a little bit different, but we usually have a – so I have the staff meeting. We'll go over all the medical. Uh, we'll go over all the strength conditioning stuff that needs to happen for that day. Um, I have a field coordinator, Steve Scarsoni, that that uh, will go over the, the daily schedule there. Uh, and then we have – we'll follow it up by early work. So we some guys get out in early work. Uh, we get that done. And then there's a big pause because, you know, you have to get the active warm up in and the stretch. And that takes an hour now. <laughs> so you got to activate the glutes or you can't do anything. Um, well, you got to activate them so you get hurt more than people used to. <laughs> yeah. So then we have that downtime, which sometimes we'll do some staff training. Sometimes we'll have some question and answer period with, with Grady. Sometimes we'll have a guest speaker come in. Uh, so there's just a lot of different things that, that can happen in that hour. But, you know, it's just you just got to wait and let medical do their thing and strength and conditioning. So, and then we're on the field. Um, it's called 10 o'clock full workout, uh, you know, ground balls field. And we don't do, we don't do hardly any, we don't do anything at all. We don't do any team defenses and stuff other than infield outfield and instructionally. We do more individual skill-based stuff then come in for lunch uh, and then go back out for a game at about 1230. Um, and so depending on how much innings we have that day, you know, it could be a five-inning game, could be a nine-inning game. You know, pitchers got to throw their one in 15, and then they're done for a week. They're not allowed to throw more than that. So um, it's it's a lot of negotiation between medical, strength, pitching coordinator, trying to get it all together. And sometimes you got to fight your battles, and sometimes you just uh, got to give in, you know. So spring training similar? Spring training similar, yeah. Uh, except that you know you're traveling there in spring training uh, to the other teams. So you got people getting on buses. You're either, you're trying to find out if um, what team, you, what pitching you want to go watch. Whether you want to go watch the AAA double, they might be on the road, right. or you, you're just going to stay home and watch the A ball clubs. Especially late in spring when you're trying to make decisions on where to put guys. Um, you know, you'll sit up in the tower and be like, all right, if this guy gets a hit, he's going double A. No, it's, but, you know, it's usually just trying to make those evaluations. And sometimes, unfortunately, you know, who's going to get released? So medical comes in play there a lot. And, um, you know, so then towards the end of spring training and then like if we're on the road, then I'd go over to the big league game as well. So when you have that, when you have that gap talking to the front office, you know, seeing who they want in certain positions. So I'm constantly moving the big board around as the spring training goes on to try to get it all dialed in as easy as we can for the end of spring training. And then unfortunately at the end of spring training, you're usually releasing some guys. So. I watched, <clears throat> I watched Keith in, in my brief time with him and how he interacted. It seemed like Keith would try to be as many places as he could be for the regular season on a typical day. Where are you? How do you decide 
where you go, what your next trip is. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's certain guys that, hey, I've got to see this guy. I haven't seen him in a while. Or I got to put my eyes on this new guy we just traded for or whatever. Give me a typical day. And, and being in your position, how tough is it for you to keep tabs on the entire minor leagues? I mean, is it a lot of relying on your staff or, or how do you go about that? Well, I mean, nowadays, I mean, every game is on television. So, right. so, so, I mean, I get, if I'm not on the road, I'm watching every game. So I watch, I got four screens at home plus the big league game on. So I'm trying to watch those games. Um, how do I decide where I'm going to, like you said, it, if it could be a guy that, you know, we just traded for, we don't really know much about him. You know, so I might, I might go in there for a week into, let's say, Midland, if he, this guy's there, to see him throw and just throw aside because we, we don't have a lot of information on him personally because you want to get to know those guys a little bit. Um, but I try to hit every place three times uh, at least, and so I kind of will look at different parts of the schedule. I usually come home, and I don't go anywhere for a couple of weeks after spring training. Uh, I'm fortunate that our, you know, our, our low-A team is in Stockton, so I can get down there to watch some games. Um you know, I get over to Oakland. I go to the Dominican Republic uh, a couple times a year as well. So I just bounce around. As far as keeping tabs, like I said, I, I talk to the managers almost every day. I talk to the pitching coordinator uh, every day, uh, maybe multiple times a day. Um, so every day is busy. It, it kind of gets busier at different times of the day because of the, of the time changes where guys are at. Uh, but like I said, usually the first call in the morning is, is to our pitching coordinator, and then we'll talk. I'll talk to the managers at some point. Uh, before they get to the yard or right when they get to the ballpark. Um, and then we, you know, we, we have game reports online. So I'm reading, those are the first things I do every morning is read all the game reports from all the levels. Um, and then if there's something pops in the game report, I'll, you know, I usually call on that. So, and then eventually someone got ejected and I'll get a call from MLB or, you know, God forbid they, the bench is clear because they, they find us now organizationally every time anybody steps foot on the field and it doubles every time. So you, you can rack up some, some fines there pretty quick organization wise. Do you have uh this is the side of it. Do you get calls from agents talking about their kid and Hey Sprague, what's going on with my shortstop? He's why isn't he playing? Why is he playing first base all the time? Yeah. I would say that's the, yeah, I, I probably field calls from agents once a day, depending. Um, there's certain agents that call me multiple times a week, you know, how come he got benched? Wow. He was late. For, <laughs> he was late for a meeting. And well, and then they'll call the next day. He's like, he's not playing again. The manager hates him. I'm like, no, he doesn't. We're trying to prep your kid for the big leagues. Like you don't screw around and be late and be a prima donna because as soon as I send him up there and if he does the same thing, what, what's going to happen? Kotz is going to call me and be like, what the hell are you guys doing down there? Right. You know? So, yeah. I mean, most of the agents are good. I mean, you know, they call, they wonder, um, you know, we had Jonah Heim uh, a few years ago when, before he was an all-star, right? He was in double-A, and, and they were kind of splitting time with one of those other catchers. His agent called me. He's like, what's the deal? I said, look, you're, we love your guy. He's going to play, but they just were coming out of spring training. We need to have the other guy get some at-bats, too. We just can't have your guy play every day for a month and not let the backup catcher play. You know, I said, eventually, you know, your guy will get – Jonah will get all the playing time. And he did, and he obviously was a good player, and – uh, you know, the guy he was putting time with at the time now is your brother's uh bullpen catcher. So in New York. And Heim's got a ring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you uh you know, I was on the shuttle as a player, 1993. Lou sent me up and down, it seemed like 10 times, but I think it was three times. 
obviously you're you're a part of that how much take me through a day where you're gonna you got four different transactions you got some guy going double a to triple a some guy going triple a to the big leagues what's that look like for you do you how much say do you have do you ever say he ain't ready for the big leagues right now or hey he's ready i'm telling these guys yeah so i mean do i have a say yes and no not really i mean usually from the triple a to the big leagues that is usually decided by our gm you know and it's usually need based and and most of the time it's all about pitching right we this guy went too many innings send him down send him up uh the position player wise you know we've had a number of six-year frees so last year we started to get some of these these rookies up uh move through the system so did I have a say? I have a say, like sometimes, you know, they'll say, hey, let's move this guy to double A. I'll be like, ah, I don't think he's ready. You know, or, or like, or I'll be the one calling and say, hey, I think it's time to get this guy to double A. I mean, he's, he's, I was just come out of, I just was in Lansing. I really like what I see. And they'll be like, okay. So it kind of goes back and forth. So, and once you're moving one guy, there's usually a move somewhere else. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't try to send guys back down once we get them up. You know, I don't want to do that train between double A and A ball. Um, I mean, it happens, you know, something will happen with pitching. You, you'll need a guy or sometimes you just bring a guy up for Arizona for, you know, three games because the, the catcher's got a bruised thumb and he might be able to play. Maybe not. He's not a DL guy. So managing the rosters is, is difficult because the size is uh, even though they've gotten bigger, um, you know, guys are playing less. They have the six game series helps because you know, we have every Monday off. So a lot of our transactions will happen Sunday night after a game or Monday. It makes it a little bit easier. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned the general manager. David Forst is the general manager. How often are you interacting with him? Uh, David's a text guy more than a phone call guy. So I would say we during the season, there's at least once a day, maybe every other day. Um, I'm usually on a feed with me and the other GM, Dan Feinstein. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, we usually very rarely go two or three days without something, you know, phone call. Like I said, David's not a big phone call guy. I mean, we do talk on the phone occasionally, but he'd, he'd rather hit you with a text. Uh, he's obviously busy as well. So, uh, you know, I'll be shoot them a question or they'll shoot me a question like, Hey, what happened in the, why did such and such come out? It happens during the day too. Like, you know, there'll be a, an injury on the field or somebody comes out of the game and I get a, I get a text. Hey, why did, why did Nick Allen come out of the game? And I'll be like, I don't know. So I'll, you know, I'll usually call the trainer who have it. The trainer always has a, has a phone on him. Right. And, you know, it's either like, Oh, he pulled up with a quad or manager discretion 
or, you know, didn't run down the line, took him out of the game and be like, all right. So I, I text back like he didn't run hard and manager yanked him. Okay. And David's good about it. You know, I just, he just wants to be in the know. So he doesn't want to make sure that, Oh, did the guy, you know, get hit in the head or did he pull a hammy or is he just, was he a dog that day? So, and you know, we've had all of them. So not, not to use your son-in-law as an example for run, not running hard because he does. That's fine. Yeah. Nick Al, that, um, Part of that story is it, Eddie and myself. We we caught up a couple weeks ago. My daughter got married. Nick Allen is a shortstop for for the Oakland A's, and and Eddie's had a uh, a lot of interaction with Nick over the years through the minor leagues. And actually, I just picked him up from their honeymoon last night, and I said, "Hey, Nick, you ready? You've been you've been hitting the rap so." He goes, "No, Fred, <laughs> I I haven't been doing that." I said, "All right, get rid of that stupid thing." Yeah. Um, he's a great kid though. You, you got he, he's a good, he's that. a good kid. Um, all right. The obvious question, gold medal in 88 college world series, 87, 88 big boy world series champions, 92, 93 back to back. Unbelievable. Probably. And, uh, tell me about the Seoul Olympics. I got to play on a USA team. It was an off year. It wasn't an Olympic year. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, we didn't win anything. Uh, you won in 88. Take me through that soul. How cool was it? Yeah, just take me through. Gold medal. Yeah. I mean, so first of all, you're right. Back then, you know, it was college players, and you had to kind of have – you had to be in the right spot, right? I, I, I had to be a, basically a junior, you know, when there was Olympic year. So I got right. lucky that that was the case. Um, Pan Am Games as a sophomore, and then Olympics right after my junior year. So obviously we had a great team. Uh, it was a long summer. The Olympics were in the end of September that year. So we had to play. We played like a 60-game a schedule, I mean, leading up to it. And Japan twice, Italy, all around the U.S. Um, so by the time we got to Seoul, we were exhausted, you know. Um, but, again, it was it was awesome experience, uh, you know, great friends on that team. Uh, you know, we had Tino Martinez. We had Robin Ventura. You know, we had uh, – Charles Nagy, Jim Abbott, I mean, Andy Bennis, you know, we had just an incredible Tommy Goodwin. And there was just so many good players that got to the big, I think we had eight first rounders um, on that team. I think almost every player on that team got to the big leagues for the most part, except for maybe two or three guys. So uh, it was pretty impressive. Um, and it was just, but I think just we got there and it was just like, we have to win. I mean, we've been, we've been traveling since June you know, crisscrossing the world, and it would have been, you know, crushing. I think if we hadn't won, you know. So, you're you're pretty unique too. His for those of you who don't know, Eddie's Eddie's wife uh, is also a gold medalist, synchronized swimming, just like Patsy Boone. Although Patsy Boone doesn't have a gold medal. <laughs> All right. College World Series, 87, 88. I got to, I never got to go to College Ser World Series because we were SC, Sprague, and, and we always almost made it, but we never did. Rosenblatt, usually for most uh, collegiate players, that's the highest level they get to is, is the college level. And, you know, some go pro, and rarely do they make it to the big leagues where you're headed next. But how cool was it back then? Because I know as a kid watching it, it was I mean, it was everything back then to go to Rosa Blatt Stadium and, and win that College World Series. You won two of them. Yeah, I mean, Rosenblatt was so unique of a ballpark, right? It just like 
they just kept on adding on. So it was like a Lego stadium, right? They just like, oh, let's put a piece here. Let's put a piece there. So it was completely different from 87 to 88. They just kept on adding more. It was, it was old school college baseball. I mean, the locker rooms were nothing big. You know, the seats were every different color. The press box on the very top, they just like they threw it up top there as the event got bigger. Um, it felt like it was sold out every game, no matter who was playing. Like the city embraced it. Fans traveled well. Everybody was there. It was like it was just packed. It had a great, a great atmosphere. Good place to hit. You know, they even made it better the second year. Um, you know, and I, I can compare it to because we played when I was in college as a coach. We went and played the new stadium, TD Ameritrade or whatever they call it now, and it's just not the same. You know, it's got the corporate feel, and you know, feels like a minor league ballpark or whatever, like a brand new minor league ballpark. Doesn't have the same feel. But as Rosenblatt, like you said, you grew up watching those games. It had the, it's like the TV had a unique color scheme where it just like it felt right. You know, it very felt very collegiate, I guess, I think, I think at the time. And I think that's kind of cool. I mean, it felt like a SEC football game in the, you know, in the South. It just kind of had that, that uniqueness to it. So it was, a, it was a fun experience. And do you realize how unique of, of, uh, I don't know, especially the beginning of your baseball career. I mean, you won a gold medal. You won two college World Series. Then you get to the big leagues, and you went back-to-back in Toronto on those great teams. Uh, once again, I got to go to a World Series that ever won one. So according to me, if we if we call the, go- the gold medal a ring, Sprague's got five rings, Boone zero. <laughs> After all these years, Eddie, what is – we talked about the average home runs, ribbies, how we evaluated ourselves as players. As the director of player development, how do you evaluate yourself at the end of the year? Is there anything you look to? That's a good question because I just had to do a self-review. That's what you do nowadays. You self-review. You don't have someone telling you. Um, you know, I, you'd like to think you're just trying to improve players, you know, uh, if you're taking a – I mean, all the good players are expected to continue to move up. And if you can get that 17th or 18th rounder that you know, moves up the, the deal and becomes a good player, you know, kind of like Jonah Bride. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think you, you look at how well did you communicate with your coaches and your players? Um, I, you know, I like winning, you know, so I, I would prefer to be one more games in the minor leagues. But I know the sacrifices we have to make sometimes on the development side. Right. Uh, prevents us from doing that. So that's frustrating. So I'd like to say, yeah, we won, you know, we won a championship at every level. Um, and that would be great to do that. But I think there's, you know, some better ways to, to do it. I think for me, it's just trying to get all the departments to communicate efficiently. And that means athletic training, our sports performance, um, and then all our coaches, you know, and, and that's what I look at. And if these guys are getting the work in, if we're setting an environment of steady work and, expectation of, of getting that, what they need, they need to be get done to get themselves the big leagues on a daily basis. If we're providing that for them, then I think it's a successful year. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're caught in that quality. You get to the big leagues and it's all about one thing, wins and losses. That's all anybody cares about getting to the postseason, getting as far as you can in the postseason. but in the minor leagues. Yeah. I can see in your position. It's nice to see at be at the top on, and on every one of your levels, a ball, double a triple a, being at the top, it feels good. Like, all right, we're we're doing it. But you really have to <clears> – <throat> also equally important is 
our guys that we expect are they making are they making the adjustments or is our development team working good to get these guys established because at the end of the day it's great to win but most importantly is getting those guys developing those guys getting to the big leagues and helping them win now that's what really matters so you're kind of caught in between i i i don't know how i would do in that position it's like i want to win every game and i think every kid should go out there and that's your you're pissed if you lose. You expect yeah. to win every single game. Not not sit back on the well. We're just developing players. It's not that important in minor leagues. BS. We're we're there to kick everybody's ass. And at the end of the day, you're right. It is about developing. Right. Which I mean, we were developing, but we were trying to develop winning major league players. And I tell right. players all the time, it's like your window of opportunity is so small, right? Even if you play for 20 years in the big leagues, I mean, you're talking your window is small, right? You're going to be done at age 38. 40. So what frustrates me when I see players that there's, I'm like, there's got to be a sense of urgency to get things done. And you, when you get to the big leagues, you know, what it is, you're going to be judged immediately right. on, did he get them over? You know, we, we don't have a bunting mandate, but when they get to the big leagues, they don't know how to bunt because they're going to hit, in, they're hitting ninth and not hitting third. Like they did in double a, you know, I get a call. I'm like, why can't the guy bunt? Like, okay, do you want us to bunt or not? You know, it's like, we don't want you to bunt, but they have to know how to bunt. <laughs> right, right, right. And once again, I'll go back to my premise. It doesn't matter if they bunt because they won't get them in with a runner in third less than two anyway. <laughs> so, but yeah, we want we want them to understand, like, when you get there, we want you to be most prepared possible because we understand how small your window is. And once that window's gone, you're not coming back. Once they make that judgment, oh, right. boom, can't play. Right, you're done. You're, you're, once you cross that line, there is a line. Yeah, and then now you have to go to another organization or you're going to retire because they're just – and you want to make sure that they, that judgment is the, the right one the first time. And that's because if you are a winning player, if you run hard down the line, if you can move by a guy over, you can have a quality at bat, throw the ball to the right cutoff guy, you know, you can root on a teammate, pat him on the back, back up home plate, get down, get out. You can do all the little th- intangible things. It's going to matter. You know, treat the clubhouse guys good. You know, take care of your bat boys. All the all little things that you, uh, being a big leaguer is, you know dress for success, all those little things. And you can do that. Then you have, at least you have an opportunity, right? So you don't, right. they'll save you. But if you're, if you're, if you're a prick and then you go up there and then you go over three with three strikeouts, guess what? Like this guy can't play and he stinks and he's a bad guy. Right. I mean, that that's the thing. I mean, there's a handful of people that we all run into that. It doesn't matter how they behave, how they act. They're just freaks and they're just better than everybody else. They're superstars. It seems like since they were kids they're just better than everybody else so they can get away with it i remember and i've told this story a lot i remember willie bloomquist coming to the big leagues and he was going to get sent down so many times eddie and, and i said willie if i were you i'd come to the ballpark i'd wear my cotton dockers i'd part my hair on the side i'd wear loafers and a and a collared shirt i'd say yes sir no sir and one day if you're an all-star you can get a nose rig and it'll be cool. But until then, this is how you behave. Willie Bloomquist got 16 years in the big leagues. One of my favorite teammates was a really good player, played all over the place, but he was a pro's pro. He, he did all those things you're talking about. He dressed for success. He was on time. He was a great teammate. He moved runners. He played the game right. And, and it, in the end, he got 16 years in the big leagues and, and, uh, was never an everyday player. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about. It's hard to, right. it's hard to be good all the time for 16 years to out overshine that other stuff. Right. It's just really right. Hard to Barry Bonds can do it and yeah. nobody can, it's like we, you're Barry, you do whatever you want. 
you know, as long as you keep rolling out 40 and 130. Exactly. Eddie, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, it was good catching up. Stay in touch. we got to play golf. I haven't played golf in a long time with you, but. Uh, Still got two gloves. We got, I got two gloves. I go, I go to Pebble on Wednesday. I'm ready to go. Putt stroke is back. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that is after round one. Booty, how'd you do? I stuck. I left the ball. <laughs> anyway, I appreciate you coming right. on. This was a lot of fun. For those of you watching the Boone Podcast, which now we're putting it on YouTube, for those of you listening to the Boone Podcast, I appreciate you tuning in, and we will see you next time. <laughs>